Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Welcome to an amazing, long-awaited Saturday session. It's been really um, hard to be away. I'm so grateful to be here. Um, thank you to everyone who sent beautiful messages, prayers, um, love, support. Um, while Sheikh was very ill, um, it's definitely you know the, the test of illness is is so difficult, and you're just always so grateful. When you come out the other end, um, I'm really, really grateful to be here for Surah Al-Tarim. Um, I just wanted to remind, first of all, a little bit of housekeeping. Tomorrow, actually, Sheikh is going to have an amazing conversation with um, Muhammadu um, Salahi. This is going to be an event that is hosted by the Noor Center in um, Canada. And it's going, going to be on their YouTube channel. But we will definitely get the recording afterwards as well if you can't make it. It's tomorrow at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Um, and if you don't know who Muhammadu Salahi is, um, he wrote a book called The Guantanamo Diary. He um, is a Guantanamo survivor. He was there for many, many years. Um, the book was then revised um, and uh, called uh, The Mauritanian, and which was then turned into a, an actual movie with Jodie Foster and uh, Benedict Cumberditch. And uh, I think it was um, released in 2021. Um, and so this is, um, they're going to be talking about Islam and beauty and justice um, and certainly some of the um, experiences that he had at Guantanamo but also the legal case that he's involved in now because I believe he is um, suing the Canadian government for their role in the in complicity in his, um, in, in his uh, experience and, and imprisonment in Guantanamo. So it should be a very, very powerful conversation. If you've seen some of the conversations before that were hosted by Noor Center, you know Aziza Kanji. She's an amazing um, journalist and moderator, and so she will be moderating that conversation. So definitely um, you can uh, find it on YouTube under the Noor Center, N-O-O-R-C-E-N-T-R-E -E in Canada, or you can go to our website or look at any of our emails and social media that we've been sending out, and you can find the link um, so I, I also wanted to call attention, as always, to the incredible khutbah yesterday, the first one back in a while. Um, you know, there's so much obviously happening in the world. I think people know that now Gaza is getting bombarded. Um, more people have died. Um, you know, Sheikh talked about that. Um, and he also talked about um, the, our, some experiences. We, we actually, in this time that we were away, we lost one of our dogs who had been with us for... Um, almost 15 years. Um, her name is Baby, and I brought a picture. So I think some, some people um, probably recognize her because I've shared um, her picture before on social media and in the weekly email because we actually, um, she got very ill and we thought we were gonna lose her a few years ago um, when we were in California. We actually didn't think she was gonna make the trip all the way here to Ohio. Thankfully, she did. She's a really strong puppy, um, or she was a strong puppy. Um, she survived her um, the, the illness that almost took her down. She actually had a really bad infection, and so, and then um, later she developed cancer of the throat, and um, that was eventually what what took her. Um, and I, um, you know, the important thing about the, the the reference to baby and the dog is that I mean the the title of the chutbah is called "It's a Dog's Life." reflecting on the right to life and mercy. Um, and it was a beautiful analogy that the Sheikh used to talk about, you know, like what is owed to the creation of God, um, you know, among them obviously beautiful dogs, um, and also reflecting on, you know, when we care for, or how we've been caring for dogs, um, and how, you know, how to think about 
what happens to Muslims, to people, you know, around the world and their right to life and their right to mercy. So it was a very powerful um, khutbah. And I thought that I, um, you know, there's so much to say always. And, uh, you know, especially even being away for two weeks, there's just so many things that happen in the world that, you know, we wanted to comment on. But I thought I would take this opportunity um, to just share some dog stories because, you know, certainly, um, you know, I was really excited. I didn't know that he was going to talk about our dogs um, yesterday in the khutbah, and I'm sure that there are probably not many khutbahs around the world or around the country that actually talk about dogs, and especially in a in, a, in light of a you know loving, beautiful, merciful way. Um, and you know, so it was, you know, I. I one of the things that I've really wanted to do through like Asuli or through you know the work that we do is just to elevate the position of dogs and animals but dogs in particular because I think that with Muslims for me personally it's really obscene that Muslims are the ones that are known to be anti-dog and I understand all of that but part of our work here is to try and educate people that that really should not be the case um, you know, dogs are amazing creatures. Um, anyone who has spent any time with a dog or a cat or any other animal um, knows that they, you know, are a beautiful creation of God. And dogs, in particular, were programmed to literally love and care for us and serve us as human beings. I mean, there's, you know, people here obviously the, the term man's best friend, but there is, you know, you could say so much more. Um, and I wanted to share some of this because Sheikh and I, in our in our marriage of you know almost three decades, have rescued well over 50 dogs. Um, and you know, if you get to know them and you get to see them, and you see how they interact with you, I mean, their love is so pure and so beautiful. It's like no other. I mean, their love to you is actually better than um, the love you'll get from most human beings, because it's it's so. Um, it's, you know, there's no expectation. There's nothing but just pure joy when they see you. They want to be with you. You know, nothing makes them happier just to be in your presence. Um, and, you know, you see even stories of people that abuse their dogs and their dogs still love them. Um, I mean, obviously that is not, not what I want to talk about. But, you know, the, um, when you get to know, like, the complexity of these animals, um, it's amazing because each one is is a unique creature with a unique personality. Um, research has been done to show that dogs in particular probably have like the development of a two-year-old child. Um, but, you know, so if you think about that, you know, how would you take care of your two-year-old child? Because you know if you've had children or you've interacted with two-year-olds, you know that they, even though they're very young, they're very complex and they feel a lot of emotions and they understand things and they certainly understand love and they certainly understand what it means not to be loved and to be neglected. Um, and so, you know, our, um, our dogs have been an amazing even education into life and understanding humanity and people. And I had the great blessing of actually sitting with baby all the way through her her last breaths. Um, she had cancer, um, she got cancer when she was late stage, so she died when she was 15, she probably got it when she was about 13, and it was the type of cancer that grew in her throat. And so it was slowly, um, you know, collapsing her passageway. So her ability to breathe became, you know, worse over time. And so we noticed that her breathing became more labored, um, and, you know, it's, it's difficult. You imagine someone slowly suffocating you. But we made the very, you know, important decision. It was a very difficult decision. I mean, we could have gone the route where we, you know, subject her to 
whether it's, you know, um, surgeries, um, recovery, anesthesia, you know, for dogs at that age, they're like very, very old and you don't know um, how much um, they will suffer in terms of pain from a procedure like that or, um, you know, will be able or, or to the ability to which they can heal. So we made the decision that we would just try to make her as comfortable as possible. And thankfully, um, you know, about, a, it was about a week ago Sunday um, where she just declined very quickly um, within the last day of her life. And, um, and that honestly is, is a mercy and a blessing. Um, you know, if anyone has had pets and has had to struggle with what to do, you know, one of the worst things about um, having, you know, these creatures that you love is that they live short lives and that they, those lives come to an end and you have to oftentimes decide what to do, especially if they're not dying from natural causes, but they have, you know, an illness or you see that they're suffering or that they've lost their ability to walk or something like that. Um, and, and I believe that these are all lessons for us as human beings because they're reminders that one day this will also be us. You know, we could be the ones that are struggling with an illness or um, suffering from an inability to walk. Um, and so, you know, and then obviously death. Um, and so when you see death before you and, you know, with us having rescued so many dogs, we've seen a lot of death. Um, they're important reminders for how to be merciful and how to care. Um, and you imagine, you know, a, a two-year-old, you know, in their last moments of life, um, you know, I wanted to be sitting next to baby, petting her, making sure she didn't feel alone. And it's, again, a reminder, we, none of us want to die alone. Um, so, you know, this was, um, you know, if nothing else, I just to share, like, you know, dogs are not just animals that you can, you know, set aside or, um, you know, put to sleep when it's inconvenient for you because they demand more of your time or care or your money. This is what Sheikh talked about in the um, khutbah yesterday. But they have a right to life and they have a right to care and they have a right um, to, you know, s live comfortably all the way through to the end. Um, right now we have um, Oso, who is 17. Um, he's a husky, an amazing dog. We rescued him when he was eight years old back in 2013. When we got him, um, he had been left behind. I think his previous owner um, had gotten old and ill and couldn't take care of him anymore. Um, he had cancer, and so we um, had to have the vet remove that cancer. And then over time, he's just gotten old. He's just super old. I mean, life expectancy for a husky is between 12 and 15 years. So for him to reach the age of 17 is pretty amazing. And you know, alhamdulillah, most of the dogs that we've had have not wanted to leave us. So <laughs> they like get really, really old. Um, and also um, now is at a stage where he literally, when he's awake, he cries because if he's laying down, he can't get himself up. So, you know, one of us in the family, um, mostly me, um, will have to go and help him stand up. And once he's actually up, he's okay. But he just kind of gets tangled in himself. And so, you know, he's got so much spirit and, and life. He's just like, you know, an, like a 120-year-old man that can't get up from his chair. So it's like, you know, if I hear him crying, I have to go, you know. And so the thought of like, um, you know, a lot of people would probably just put, you know, put Oso to sleep. Um, but I can't imagine because he's just the most beautiful creature and, you know, he has, he's just nothing but pure, pure love. Um, so I, I hope that Muslims, um, you know, will, I mean, I've heard actually, I want to share this story too. Um, our, our niece told me that she came across one of her friends who um, 
was like, oh my God, I'm so grateful to your uncle because I watched some of his videos about dogs and the permissibility of dogs. And I just married you know, a, a convert who had a dog and we were able to keep him just because of the videos that you do here. Um, and that's like the kind of story that makes me so happy because I think Muslims should be on the front line of advocating for dogs and dog ownership and loving dogs and recognizing the absolute divinity of each dog and the love they bring, um, the loyalty, the, the complexity, the, the, the sense of humor. Honestly, the things that, that God has designed dogs to do or cats or anything, they just make you laugh. They cheer you up. They're with you. They, they're non-judgmental. They don't expect anything from you. They're just, you know, they just make your life better. They're, they really transform your life. So I hope that dogs will, um, I mean, that Muslims will will come to learn um, and embrace ownership of a dog and not to think of them just as a dog, but to think of them as a family member, a friend, your closest companion, um, you know, uh, your, your connection to God, um, you know, because God speaks through our dogs to us every single day. Um, and if, if we pay attention and we listen, there's just so much to learn um, from how they are, how they treat us. They teach us how to be better human beings ourselves. So um, if nothing else, um, if you're thinking about getting a dog, get one, start small, <laughs> um, you know, and work your way up because, you know, I, I know that Muslims have a lot of baggage to overcome in terms of fear of dogs. And we've definitely had, um, our own strategy we always would show uh, people might know Lucci our little Maltese he's in one of our little like prayer videos so anytime people would come that were like scared of dogs we would always introduce them to Lucci and Lucci was like the gateway dog so <laughs> like you meet Lucci Lucci's non-threatening very cute and it starts unlocking the fear um, and opening the love so um, you know we, we've definitely converted a lot of um, people even within our own family um, who were scared of dogs and made them into dog lovers and I think that's really you know we're here to care for God's creatures so um, you know dogs are amazing and again we're a gift honestly to all of us so um, that's it I just um, you know I, I hope that people will watch yesterday's khutbah because it was really powerful to understand like the lens of what's happening in our world with our brothers and sisters um, you know through the lens of caring for an animal um with that i you know i hope that everyone will keep gaza and all the muslims around the world that are suffering in their prayers and i'm looking so forward to another meeting of beauty um and understanding uh, surah al-tarim um, which i'm sure will be absolutely stunning so thank you for joining us um, again thank you for everyone's prayers happy to be back and uh, looking forward to another amazing session سبحان الله العلي العظيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على محمد وعلى آله الأطهار الطيبين وعلى أصحابه المختارين وعلى من اتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري واحلل وقرة من لساني يفقى قولي يا رب العالمين because we have not had um, because we've had to skip a few halakhas I've decided that instead of doing the Q&A on uh, Surat Al-Ahzab to go ahead and do a new surah today and then inshallah um, perhaps combine the Q&A with Surat Al-Ahzab with Surat Al-Tahrim. 
So inshallah today is Surah Al-Tahreem. Um, so there, there is going to be quite a bit of before jumping into the substance, quite a bit of situating Surat Al-Tahreem because it is uh, significant and it raises some very interesting historical questions similar to Surat Al-Ahzab, the type, type of questions that we've already um, uh, encountered in, in to an extent um, in Surah Al-Ahzab. Okay. So Surah Al-Tahrim is a late Medinian Surah. Um, likelihood, the likelihood is that it was revealed in the seventh Hijri year. Seventh, for many different reasons, is the most likely um, year for of revelation. Now, it, there are interesting the 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 reports that often will tell us the order of revelation. This is a genre of reports that tell you. This surah was revealed, and this surah, then this surah, and so on. Um, will often assert that Surah Al-Tahrim was number 107 in order of revelation. Um, and in fact, these reports will often claim that it was revealed after Surah Al-Hujurat and right before Surah Al-Taghabun. So, sort of positioned between Al-Hujurat and Al-Taghabun. Both Surah we've covered. Um, but these reports that these chronological reports um, Um, are not reliable in, in because it is most certain that al-hujurat for instance was revealed after at-tahrim not before at-tahrim um, and at-taghabun most certainly was revealed before surah at-tahrim and not after surah at-tahrim Al-Hujurat, which we've talked about, was quite likely revealed the ninth uh, Hijra, eighth or ninth Hijra, and Al-Taghabun um, revealed in the first three or four years of Hijra, in the third or fourth uh, Hijri year. So, 
when we get these narratives that tell us about the chronology of Sur, when we often delve into the details of these narratives, we discover that the layout of the chronology, and we've had many examples of this already in many different situations, uh, that the that the, we can't rely on on the chronology as narrated. But as we've often done, we can often, through various indicators, reach a type of opinion. We, we can come to a conviction that a particular surah was revealed within a particular year. And in the case of Surah Al-Tahrim, as I said, it is most likely that it is in the seventh Hijri year. Um, and uh, after Surah, definitely after Surah Al-Ahzab, um, which is the last Surah we've covered, um, probably, for instance, a year or two after Al-Ahzab. Um, and in all likelihood, right before Surat Al-Mumtahina, which we did not cover. Um, okay. So this is in terms of the cr chronology of the surah. And right away, when dealing with Surah Al-Tahrim, we are struck by the range of reports about the Asbab al-Nuzul or occasion for revelation. And here we will spend some time unpacking this because it is also relevant to uh, the, the meaning and the message of Surah Al-Tahrim itself. So, Surah Al-Tahrim starts out, if you remember in Surah Al-Ahzab, the beginning is Allah talking to the Prophet والسلام, and invoking the Prophet towards to, to have an ever-present um, consciousness of Allah and to be resolute in this consciousness. Surah Al-Tahrim starts out again with a rather abrupt, powerful beginning where Allah speaking to the Prophet tells the Prophet why is it or perhaps even criticizes the Prophet or chides the Prophet for caving in 
to social pressure, in this case, caving into pressure from his family, his wives, and prohibiting upon himself something that is allowed. So the the opening language Ya ayyuhan nabi lima tuharrim ma ahallallah lak right so why do you and it's why do you out of a desire to please your wives why do you, out of a desire to please your wife, prohibit something that God has made lawful to you? And when you make something prohibited, that is called tahrim. Tahrim is when you declare something not to be allowed. Tahrim could be legitimate or illegitimate. Tahrim is shay, to declare something prohibited, could be legitimate or illegitimate. And what makes it legitimate or illegitimate is the basis for the tahrim. If it's authorized by God, then it is legitimate. If it is not authorized, then it is acting without authority. The very beginning of Surah Al-Tahrim and the very gist of Surah Al-Tahrim is that it is a grave matter. It is a very serious issue to take something that is pre, that is allowable that is permissible and to make it impermissible now it would not be if if you if you refrain from engaging in something that is permissible out of personal taste. So in other words, you are not claiming that your position has normative value. You are not claiming that your exercise of personal taste carries authoritative weight carries normative weight that is not a matter of concern for tashria for law for jurisprudence your exercise of your personal taste and personal autonomy as long as you are not making a normative claim is something between you and god where it does have serious consequences 
is when the tahrim, when the act of declaring something permissible, impermissible, has normative weight. So in other words, it might in fact be a representation. You are making a representation about a will that is not yours, i.e. God's will. It's one thing if you are just saying, this is my own personal will, and this is a matter between me and God. This is, it's a closed matter. There's a closed circuit between you and your maker. But it is, when the claim that is made goes beyond this closed circuit, and you are not representing your own personal will or personal taste, but you are making a representation upon about what God wants or God does not want. Now, so this strikes us at the very beginning of Surah Al-Tahrim as an issue. And we will, you'll, you'll better understand why in a second, but, but as a, as a prima facie matter, as a, a sort of a, the very outstart of the matter, why is it an issue? Well, if the prophet because of his interactions with his wives in engaged in um, or abstained from doing some act or promised not to do some act we really don't get to the issue of tahrim unless there was normative implications to what the prophet did so again let's for example say as we will see in a, in a, in a, in a second let's say the prophet says to his wives, by God, I will never eat X, Y, Z. Is that tahrim? Well, if all he said is, for whatever reason, between him and his wives, all he said is, I will not consume X, Y, or Z, and that's all he said. That is not tahrim. That is an expression of a personal preference that has nothing to do with God's will. However, if what he said brings in the divine will in some form or another then we come then the issue of tahrim is involved 
And we will see why this is important in trying to go through the various narrations as to what occasioned Surah Al-Tahrim. So from, you know, we, Allah is talking to the Prophet, saying to the Prophet, why do you, in order to please your wives, do something you're not supposed to do? And what is this something that you're not supposed to do? You are making something prohibited. And the challenge, though, is that the narrations about the story behind Surah Al-Tahrim, as we, you'll see in a second, um, raise credibility issues, interpretive issues. So this will become clear as, as I go through the, the narratives for occasions for revelations. Okay. So what is striking is that there is an there is an occasion, there is an event that happened or a set of events that happened between the, the, the Prophet and his wives it led to some something dramatic and Allah intervenes in this by underscoring that matters of halal and haram, matters of making what is permissible haram or what is haram halal is too serious to be left to personal tastes and personal dynamics. It should never be a matter of uh, personal accommodations or personal preferences. Halal and haram involves the will of the legislature, the will of God, and the authorization for halal and haram can only come from that source. So then, of course, that begs the question, well, what happened? And what you find quite surprising about Surat al-Tahrim is the range of narratives, the extremely wide range of narratives about what happened. And this is something that, has, we'll get into this in a little bit, but something that has been noticed by a number of commentators. So let's go through some of the most uh, famous ones. So we have a whole block of narratives. that claim oh, oh there's one other thing that I, sh- I should introduce before going through this narrative there's another element to to what the quran says is that surah al-tahrim doesn't just talk about a, a an accommodation that was offensive to god some type of carrying favors with the wives that God did not approve of. But it also talks about 
some secret that was revealed. There was the the Prophet apparently tells one or more of his wives something and this whatever was told was communicated and by the terms of the surah itself is so so this is verse 3 it so happened that the prophet told something in confidence to one of his wives and when she thereupon divulged it and god made this known to him he told others about he he in he mentioned the 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 communication that took place he mentioned some of it and didn't talk about other parts of it so he the muhammad asa translates it as he acquainted others with some of it and passed over some of it It, meaning that he didn't come and say, well, he didn't confront whoever this person was about the full confidence that was broken. He only confronted this person about part of the confidence that was broken. Okay? And then the, the, the wife says, who told you, who informed you that I, in fact, broke that confidence? And the answer from the Quran is, well, who, God is the one who told me. And so these, this is another element to the narrative. The surah itself doesn't give us any details. It doesn't tell us what the tahrim was. It doesn't tell us what the specifics of the events were. It doesn't tell us what was the confidence or the secret. It doesn't tell us what confidence was broken it alludes to these events but doesn't explain any of them and that is why then you go to the traditions to try to to understand whether the traditions in fact can explain to you what surah al-tahrim is alluding to So then we have a whole cluster of narratives that say these are known, we can call them the Maria clusters of narratives. According to the, this, the, this cluster that the Prophet was in Hafsa's quarters. Hafsa is his, one of his wives, uh, the daughter of Omar ibn al-Khattab, and that he was in Hafsa's quarters, and Hafsa is not present in her quarters and she goes there 
narratives differ as to where Hafsa was at the time, whether she went to visit her parents or she went to the market or there there a whole range of them. Okay. And that for some reason that the narratives don't really explain to us that the prophet is at Hafsa's quarters with Maria, the Copt, who was given to him as a slave girl. And according to this this cluster, that some narratives claim that there there was a sexual encounter between the Prophet and Maria in Hafsa's quarters. Some claim that it it wasn't a sexual encounter, but that he it he was present with Maria, uh, the well known for at least until she becomes a Muslim uh, as Maria the Copt. Um, that he's present, regardless of of the specifics, that Hafsa is upset that the prophet is with Maria in her quarters. And she confronts the prophet about this and says, basically, why are you with Maria in my quarters? This is my space. This is my bed. Well, they didn't have a bed, but my sleeping quarters. And from there, there is something that is odd, to, to say the least, about this these cluster of narratives. So if we understand, if we can get over the fact that we know from other narratives that Maria had her own quarters, we know that from the time that Maria came to the prophet's household. And we have descriptions as to where the Maria's quarters were. So, but if we get over the fact that why is Maria with the prophet in Hafsa's quarters? And of course, you know, the... the um, well, anyway, I'll come back to this. Uh, there is another element to these narratives that then strikes us as rather very odd. Is that when Hafsa confronts the Prophet about this, he is very worried that Aisha would find out about the event. Well, if it's Hafsa's quarters, why would he be worried that Aisha would find out? Well, these narratives tell us that for some reason that the narratives don't explain, that he was with Maria in Hafsa's quarters on a day that was belonged to Aisha. 
that on a day that was supposed to be Aisha's. So the Prophet tells Hafsa, tries to uh, appease Hafsa, and Hafsa's upset, and he tells Hafsa, don't mention this to Aisha. And if you don't mention this to Aisha and promises, if Hafsa doesn't mention this to Aisha, that he will never touch Maria again. Okay. That he will never touch Maria again. And that Hafsa goes ahead and, in fact, informs Aisha, tells Aisha about the incident. And according to these, this cluster, then we are told that this is what occasioned, this is the tahrim that, um, that, that Surah Al-Tahrim is talking about. And so, of course, that begs the question, well, even if this did happen, where is the Tahrim? Where is what is making permissible impermissible? And the answer typically given is that because the Prophet swore or took an oath not to touch Maria. There is a further element in this cluster of reports that rather make these reports even more interesting. We are told in all the versions of these reports that involve Maria, Hafsa, a sexual encounter of, or, or Khalwa, regardless, um, and don't tell Aisha, Aisha is told, is that at this point, the Prophet, والسلام, tells uh, Hafsa, not only will I promise not to ever touch Maria again, but let me tell you a secret. What is the secret? After I die, Aisha's father is going to become the Khalifa after me. And then your father will become the Khalifa after me. And Hafsa is so excited with this news that she is unable to keep it a secret. And she goes and tells Aisha, let me tell you what the Prophet just told me. After he dies, Abu Bakr will become the Khalifa and Omar will become, then Omar will become the Khalifa. 
as the language goes, اكتمي عليا وبشرك أن أبا بكر وعمر يملكاني بعدي. That's the... Um, now, there are variations within these narratives that that when the Prophet learns that Hafsa broke the confidence and in fact went ahead and told Aisha that Abu Bakr is going to be the Khalifa after him and then Omar and that now the rumors have started spreading in the community that you know the secret is out that the Prophet is so upset that he divorces Hafsa and then that he is commanded by Gabriel Angel Gabriel to go back on the divorce. He is told, basically, no, she's your going. She's going to be your wife in Jannah, so you can't divorce her. So he goes back on the divorce. Okay. In all the variations, there, there, there are many minor variations in these reports about the Hafsa, the, this, this basic building block. The Hafsa, the Maria, the, the Aisha. None of these narratives are of solid reliability. There are, but, but even other than the matter of Isnad, even other than the matter of Isnad, as people like Arazi, for instance, has, have pointed out, that the, the Dafal Isnad or the, the weakness in chains of transmission is one thing, but there the, the the historical positioning of these reports are suspect. So we have these questions about, well, why Maria in Hafsa's quarters? How, why Aisha, why is the Prophet so worried about Aisha finding out about him being with Maria when it was a, a, an open matter. There was no secret that that um, and all the reports that inject an element, a political element where the matter of the Khilafah seem to be resolved in favor of Abu Bakr and Omar are suffer or have the characteristic in terms of who narrated these reports 
of being among what are known as the Nawasib reports. The people who narrated these reports have all, in terms of their political careers, have sided with Muawiyah, supported the Amoids, and opposed or at least did not support Ali and Al-Bayt. There is another element that a scholar like Farhan al-Malki, may Allah release him from prison, I completely agree with, and he has point, done a great job in, in emphasizing and, and, and investigating, is that there is a remarkable thing about these politicized reports. Farhan al-Malki noticed, and when reading him and looking at the same material, I completely agree, is that these reports always tend to not just support the Amawids and be support Muayyah's faction, but suffer from um, a tendency to malign the character of the Prophet. Quite often, illogically. So, if you, if you unpack this report, so, you want us to believe that the Prophet takes Maria from her quarters, takes her to Hafsa's quarters, uses the opportunity that Hafsa is away, decides to use this opportunity to have sex with Maria in Hafsa's quarters, and then when she finds out and is upset about it, he basically wants her to lie or to keep a secret, which is icky and dishonest. Not at all what we know about his character. So, oh, don't tell anyone. Please don't tell Aisha. Very um, slimy. Very slithery. Oh, don't tell Aisha. Don't tell Aisha. Oh, don't tell Aisha. And I'll tell you a big secret. Your father and I, you, Aisha's father and your father are going to become the Khalifa after me. If you dislike the Prophet, you'd be excited about a report like this. If you want to malign and slander the Prophet, you'd be excited about a report like this. And Farhan al-Malki is absolutely right that after the Prophet died, many of the people who claimed to convert to Islam and who established the Umayyad dynasty were Muslim in name only. And part, they, they carried a vendetta against the Prophet and Al-Bayt. The vendetta that they carried 
is that he defeated them. He defeated Quraysh. And there was an injection of a wave of reports that we have to be very honest about, are slanderous, unbecoming. Okay, so what other clusters exist? Well, there are clusters of reports that tell us no, the issue was not Maria the Copt and Hafsa's quarters and all of that. The issue was that there was a woman who, if you remember, we talked about Hiba. This is a woman that goes to the prophet and says, I want to marry you and without a dowry. And that there's a, a, a sort of a low cluster of reports that say that a woman offered herself to the prophet in this way and that this upset, again, Hafsa and Aisha and that the prophet, when he saw Hafsa and Aisha get upset, he said, I promise I will never marry a woman who does this Hiba procedure or, you know, want to marry me without a dowry. And that that's what the surah is talking about, that the, the promise made and that God chides the prophet for promising, making something haram. In, in other words, the, the haram here is that he promises, I will not marry when, when, when God hasn't uh, set that restriction upon him. However, all the versions of this cluster are extremely weak. And so I don't know any scholar has accepted it even as potentially authentic. Now, okay. Another, uh, I forgot this, there's another complicating element. We, many of the versions about the Maria, Hafsa, and Amra, uh, and, uh, and Aisha clusters tell us that after the Prophet finds out that Hafsa revealed the secret, he is upset, and as a result, he stays in Maria's quarters, in Maria's home, for 29 days, isolates himself in Maria's home for 29 days, away from his other wives. Of course, that, you know, um, raises some interesting historical questions. If it's at all true, um, I mean, the most simple and straight, straightforward question is, well, if this is an issue that involved Hafsa and Aisha, why would he isolate himself from the rest of the wives? Well, you know, it's like, well, it's not 
even if he's mad at Hafsan Aisha, how are, you know, how is it the other wife's fault? Um, and why would he isolate himself in Maria's quarters in particular, um, considering the background, etc., etc.? Okay. Now, there is other reports, another cluster of reports that says, no, this had nothing to do with Maria, sexual encounter, none of that. Um, but rather, these are known as the, you could call them the, the honey reports, that... Um, and there are various versions of this. Some versions say that Um Salama had a pastry made of honey that the Prophet liked licking. You, you sort of you keep licking at it, and it, um, I can't. I don't know how to. Anyway, yalaq minha, and so on. Um, so the the Um Salama pastry, honey pastry, right? Uh, there is um, there is the Sauda. Other versions say no, it wasn't Um Salama pastry. It was a pastry served by Sauda. Very similar in all other regards, a pastry made of honey that he would enjoy licking. But instead of Um Salama providing that pastry, it was Sauda who provided this pastry. Within that same cluster, I would put also the Zainab bin Jahsh reports, which said, no, it wasn't a pastry served by Um Salama or Sauda, it was a drink made of honey served by Zainab bin Jahsh. And that the Prophet in, liked that drink and he liked it when Zainab bin Jahsh prepared the drink for him and he would happily drink it. Okay, so how does this become an issue? Well, so this is the honey cluster, right? Whether pastry licking or honey drinking. The problem is, again, we get the, the same figures and same characters playing a role. Hafsa, Omar's daughter, and Aisha, Abu Bakr's daughter, and that they are jealous that the Prophet is either enjoying Um Salama's pastry or Sauda's pastry or Zainab's drink. And so they conspire that every time they know that the Prophet, depending on which version you accept, uh, has either went and had that drink at Zainab's quarters or ate that pastry, is that they conspired to tell him that he had a foul order attached to him. And that when they kept doing that, because the Prophet 
it is what that he he cared a lot about. He, I I think he had a sensitive nose, because we have a lot of reports about his sensitivity to obnoxious odors. That he when he they. Uh, um, when Hafsa and Aisha complain about the bad odor, he says, he swears, he promises that he will never drink that drink again or eat that pastry again. And that the entire tahrim is precisely this. The promise not to drink or eat the pastry again Now, in this cluster of reports, however, what is the secret that is being betrayed? There is allegedly a promise, okay, I'm not, you know, since you complain about my, the way I'm, the way I smell, I swear I'm never going to touch this drink again. But what is the tahrim? Is it that he said, I swear I'm not going to touch this drink again? And so God is chiding him for taking an oath that he shouldn't take? Because he's not making something permissible, prohibited. He is taking an oath that perhaps he shouldn't have taken. And what is the secret being betrayed? There's something very curious. This report about the Prophet not liking Hafsa and Aisha complaining about his odor. doesn't make the prophet look bad. It doesn't slander the prophet. And lo and behold, when you look at the chain of transmissions, you don't find the Nawasib involved. in The, the Nawasib are involved in the version of report, in the version that, that has the sexual encounter with Maria. At the same time, the slanderous reports all have that political element to it. But the non-slanderous reports, the, the honey versions, honey reports, do not have the political element to it. He doesn't go on to say, oh, and shall I, I'm going to tell you a secret. Abu Bakr and Omar are going to become the Khulafa after me. But there is a problem with the honey reports. Well, many problems, but we don't know what the secret that was communicated or broken is. And it seems infantile and disproportionate. They tricked him into thinking that drinking honey 
basically a drink made out of honey results in a bad odor and he believed them and believed them so much so to actually swear never to touch that drink again it has a comical theatrical characteristic to it or he believed that actually licking this pastry made out of honey this is a you know a pastry that didn't require preservation it hardened it became sort of like hard bread and you you consume it by licking at it for a long time and he actually then believed them that when he would lick this pastry it, it resulted in a bad odor and so much so it bothered him so much that he took an oath never to touch that pastry again and even if this was true why would it result in a crisis in the family and a complete um you know a, a, a meltdown if you will within the family of the prophet that allah would have to intervene now why do i did i take the time to to go through these reports because of course islamophobes have jumped and because muslims have never taken ownership of their own tradition never used their intellect to analytically go through their own tradition islamophobes found plenty of muslims that just unthinkingly and uncritically repeat the maria tradition and hafsa's quarters and it's slanderous you you, you can't there, there's no way you're gonna make you're gonna you know you're, you're gonna uh, 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 make it look okay it's slanderous it doesn't make and and you know this honest prophet who says oh you know don't tell Aisha and, and I'll tell you something it's, it's horrible very much like what we encountered in Surah Al-Ahzab the Zaid reports and of course Muslims young Muslims who have no clue about anything you know they read this material and on social media and whatever and by islamophobes and uh, you know off they go into um the mess they're they're in and it's not their fault it is the fault of the lack of serious scholarship in the islamic tradition because no people deal with their history with this level of lack of seriousness like muslims do okay so we've talked about three clusters right the maria cluster the honey cluster and the third cluster which most reject anyway the hibba cluster the marriage without dowry cluster and in my view 
the evidence is rather very clear that it is very unlikely that any of these clusters explain to us what Surah Al-Tahrim is talking about. One is a highly politicized tradition that is slanderous. The second is a theatrical tradition that has the medieval characteristics of theater but lack of historical authenticity. And the third is just so off the wall about the Hiba uh, that, I mean, not a single chain even is is plausibly so then we investigate further and we delve deeper and we find within the cluster of traditions some less popular because they didn't play, they didn't have the same, uh, okay, let me explain this one. Narratives in history could be popularized because they described an historical event that people actually remembered. Or, they become popularized because they played a function. That function could be political, like the Khilafah of Omar and Abu Bakr type politicization, or that function could be something that the Qusas, the, the, the entertainers, back then it was, you didn't, obviously, you know, you didn't have. Uh, shows and circuses and the, the entertainment were often storytellers that would go from one town to another singing the seerah of the prophet and the version about drinking honey, that honey cluster, was very popular among the storytellers, the kusos. It, it was it was sort of a it it. it it made people make people entertained. You know, the prophet enjoys something. Uh, these women conspire against the prophet. They, you know, he's fooled. You know, the the poor man who's fooled by his wives, and then he, you know, poor prophet. He promises not to consume something he loves. So it has all these emotional elements that the storytellers love to repeat. So these were popularized because they played these functions, either the political function or the storytelling function. But there are versions that were not popularized because they didn't play a function. One version that we actually already encountered claims that this verse was not about the 
an oath taken by the prophet. It separates between the issue of tahrim and the the prophet trying to appease his wives in a way that was problematic. And it claims that Surah Al-Tahrim, when it talks, when it says, قَدْ فَرَضَ لَكُمْ أَيْمَانِكُمْ This is verse... verse 2 that when God says God has already enjoined upon you the the expatiation of your oath so that if you make an oath and you find that this oath was not correct and you expatiate for it that this was revealed on an because of an event that we've actually already encountered and talked about in Surah An-Nur. And that is when, remember when Abu Bakr promises or swears that he will not no longer support Mistah because Mistah contributed to the slander of Aisha. And these reports say, well, this, this ayah, ayah number two, is talking about Abu Bakr's oath not to support Mustah and telling Abu Bakr that you should not have made that oath because you should continue supporting Mustah. So it's a, sort of it comes from left field and tells us that the occasion is an event that we associate with a very different surah. Another cluster that is also not popularized tells us that no the problem had nothing to do with Maria had nothing to do with honey had nothing to do with Hiba had nothing to do with Abu Bakr and Mustah the problem was at-tazahur bayna Aisha wa hifzah في التحكم على النبي في النفقة that Hifsa and Aisha made an alliance in which they consistently complained that about financial matters that we've already encountered this type, this genre of reports that now after 
Muslims have been victorious in a number of battles. The financial affairs of Muslims have improved by the seventh Hijri year. But the financial conditions of the family of the Prophet has remained the same. There was no uh, improvement in the finances of the Prophet's household, although the rest of the Muslim population seemed to be doing better, and that the wives of the Prophet consistently complain and start lobbying the Prophet about this matter until it reaches the point where he is sufficiently upset that it reaches a real breach. Now, the problem with this kind of these kinds of reports is that they're non-specificity. We know that finances became an issue between the prophet and his wives from the fifth hijra onwards. From the fifth year after hijra, they're saying, why is it that the migrants and the Ansar are doing better, but we live with very tight budgets. Why is it that, and there are, in, in by the way, variations on these reports, uh, you know, we'll have them complaining that uh, the, the leaders of such and such tribe, the leaders of Al-Ghassasina, in one version, the, the complaint is that uh, have you seen the leaders of the Ghassanid tribes, how they live and how their wives lives? And we live with... But we've already encountered that in Surah Al-Ahzab. And we know that this was already addressed specifically. So is it that it continued to percolate from Surah Al-Ahzab to... Surah Al-Tahrim for two years. I mean, in Surah Al-Ahzab, Allah comes in and gives them a choice, right? And says, either you choose this world or you choose the Prophet. If you choose the Prophet, then forget about material wealth. And we are told in Surah Al-Ahzab, that in fact they choose the prophet so the choice is made so does it make sense that then two years later that as these cluster of reports tell us that that they that hifsa and aisha somehow continue conspire to pressure the prophet on matters of finances till it reaches and if so what is the tahrim and what is the secret
there's another element that this cluster of reports tend, they belong to a genre of reports that tend to make sort of the anti-Aisha and anti-Hafsa reports, reports that tend to do the, the instead of slandering the Prophet, they, they actually slander Aisha and slander Hafsa. In, in my methodology, I become, I suspect these reports because there is a faction, a political faction that had a vested interest in slandering Aisha. And so when I see these, this, this cluster of types of, or this genre, makes Aisha and Hafsa look bad. They, you know, after two years of, after Surat Al-Ahzab, two years after they were given the choice, and they, they supposedly made the right choice, they're, they're, they're still conspiring to make the Prophet's life very difficult because of money. It's not very flattering towards them. And I must then be suspicious that there is a political motive behind these reports. Okay. I will give you go from question marks question because all, so far all I've raised are question marks, right? So we'll go from from question marks to a possible answer. But let's take a two-minute break. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Now, of course, someone like Al-Allama Tabtabai noted that all the traditions that claim to explain the occasion for revelation for Surah Al-Tahrim, uh, none of them are reliable. Um, and that they in That, yeah, the, the, all the traditions, that, all the clusters that we've talked about so far. So let's, now, there, I will go through a set of, it's a long tradition narrated in, um, narrated in very, the, the different versions are very close to each other, but it's long and I think it's important to, to translate it or paraphrase it because I do think it helps us contextualize Surat al-Tahrim and then it will also helps, uh, help us understand the point behind Surat al-Tahrim. Okay, so I will not go, um, there, there are various, um, various um, chains of transmission, but they basically all 
tell us the 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 basic set of events that we'll talk about. And so in this Ibn Abbas reports that I knew that Surah Al-Tahrim addressed an event involving two of the Prophet's wives. Significantly, however, Ibn Abbas, according to this tradition, says, I did not know what events had transpired or who were the Prophet's wives involved. So Ibn Abbas, someone as close and as significant as Ibn Abbas, is telling us that it wasn't to him it was not common knowledge who Surat al-Tahrim or who were the, the sort of the main characters involved in Surat al-Tahrim. And that he then, during Hajj, um, he is at Hajj with Umar ibn al-Khattab. And that he used the opportunity that he is at Hajj with Umar ibn al-Khattab to approach Umar. Interestingly, all the reports, <laughs> for some reason, mentioned that that he waited for Umar. Umar went to the bathroom, and that he waited for him as he came back from bathroom and helped him do wudu, or renew his wudu, and then he asked him. So he, Ibn Abbas says, so then I asked him, من المرأتان من أزواج النبي اللاتان قال الله إن تتوب إلى الله فقد صغت قلوبكما فقال فقال وعجب لك يا ابن عباس هما عائشة وحفصة that he said who are the two women that Allah is talking about in this surah and Omar responds to Ibn Abbas and he says well, they are indeed Hafsa, his daughter, and Aisha, Abu Bakr's daughter. But then Ibn Abbas says, But then he went on or continued on to tell me the story. So what does he tell him? So this is now Umar ibn Khattab speaking. So he says, فقال كنا معشر قريش نغلب النساء فلما قدمنا المدينة وجدنا قوما تغلبهم نساءهم فطفق نساؤنا يتعلمن من نسائهم فغضبت على امرأة يوما فإذا هي تراجعني فأنكرت أن تراجعني فقالت ما تنكر من ذلك فالله إن أزواج النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم لا يراجعنه وتهجره إحداهن اليوم إلى الليل قلت قد خابت من فعلت ذلك منهم وخسرة. So he says we 
people of Mecca, men of Mecca, we used to be in control of our women until we came to Medina. And when we came to Medina, we found people who are controlled by their women. And that our women, our Meccan women, started being influenced by the Medinian women. They started becoming more bold and uh, aggressive. And one day I got mad at my wife and she argued with me. And I told her, how dare you argue with me? And she said, well, the prophet's wives argue with him and they continue argue with him from day till night. And upon hearing this, I said, ذلك منهم, you know, it's like, it's a, like a, you know, may, maybe, maybe she, may she be darned whoever argues with the prophet and, and does this. قال وكان منزلي بالعوالي وكان لي جار من الأصار كنا نتناوب على النزول إلى رسول الله that I had a, I lived in the towards the upper Medina and I had a neighbor who is from among the Ansar the natives and that we would always make sure that we check on the Prophet and we were very worried. Anyway, so that we were very worried that these days that the tribe of Ghassan was getting ready to invade us. That we our our spies were telling us that they were preparing their horses and you know getting ready to wage an invasion against us. And my neighbor came and banged at my door. And I opened the door and I said, Did the Ghassanids, are they invading? No, it is even the, the neighbor, Medinian neighbor said, No, it is even bigger than this. It is something more grave than this. So Omar said, What is it? And he said, the Prophet has divorced all his wives. قلت في نفسي قد خابت حفصة وخسرت قد كنت أرى ذلك كائنا فلما صلينا الصبح شرطت على ثيابي Upon hearing this, I said, what a big calamity, especially for Hafsa, his daughter. And I, according to Omar, he said, I, I sort of anticipated this is going to happen because of the rumors that he was hearing that they would argue with the Prophet. So after praying Fajr, the Subh, he got dressed and he went to Hifsa and I found her sitting and crying. And I said to her, Atallah kunna Rasulillah, has the Prophet divorced, divorced you? قالت لا أدري هو ذا معتزل في المشربة فانطلقت فأتيت غلاما أسود so she said I don't know if he divorced us he has isolated himself in the rest area 
so he found a boy, a boy that served the 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 Prophet and he said, "Can you ask permission for me to go in to to see the Prophet?" So the boy said, "I mentioned you to the Prophet." I, I mentioned that you want to see him, and he didn't respond. Which, if you're sensitive, it's a grave matter. You, you're asking permission to see the prophet, and the prophet doesn't respond. Okay. So he then from talaktu ila al-masjid, and I found. So he went to the masjid to to the mosque, and he found that there are people sitting depressed in circles in the masjid. So I sat with them, but then I grew impatient. I I needed to know. So I left them and went back to the prophets, to where, to where the prophet was. And then I told the boy, Ask permission for me to see the Prophet. So yeah, so then he, he said the boy went in and he said I mentioned the the pro I mentioned you to the Prophet. I said to the Prophet that you want to see him and he didn't respond. And Omar then starts to leave, to walk away, when the boy calls him back and he says, no, come back. The Prophet does want to see you. So then Omar goes in and he sees the Prophet that he had been lying on a hard mat that had left marks on his uh, side. Um, فقلت, يا رسول الله, يا رسول الله, did you divorce your wives? And he said, the Prophet said, no. قلت, الله أكبر, فقالت ما تنكر فوالله إن أزواج النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم لا يراجع لا يراجعن وتهجره إحداهن اليوم إلى الليل فقلت قد خاب من فعل ذلك منهن فدخلت علي حفصة فقتل فقلت أترا أتراجع إحدا أتراجع إحدا كن رسول الله وتهجره اليوم إلى الليل قالت نعم فقلت قد خابت من فعل ذلك منكن وخسرت أتأمن إحدى كنا أن يغضب الله عليها لغضب رسول الله فإذا هي قد هلكت فتبسم رسول الله. So he goes in, he sees the prophet, and he starts telling him the entire story. He said he starts saying, you know, when we were in Mecca, we controlled our women. Then we came to Medina and we found people who are controlled by their women. And then I, in one day, I argued with my wife and I said, how dare you argue with me? And then she said, start telling her the whole narrative, telling him the whole narrative. 
And then she said, well, the prophet's wives argue with him from, from, from day till night and even stop talking to him. And so if the prophet's wives do this, you know, why can't I do this with you? And then I told her, you know, you know may, may you be darned for, for doing this. And then I went to Hifla and I asked her, do you indeed argue with the prophet from, for hours on end, from day to night? And Hifla said, yes, we in fact do that. So then I said, you know, how dare you? Aren't you afraid that God would be, would respond or that God would be angry at you for the prophet's anger with you? And seeing this, this whole uh, um, thing that Omar starts telling the, the you know, uh, gushing out with, with the Prophet the Prophet ends up smiling. He's, he's, he's smiling at, uh, probably at Omar's reactions. And his, so then I told, when he saw that the Prophet smiled, then I told Hafsa, لا تراجعي رسول الله ولا تسألي شيئا وسليني ما بدا لك Don't argue with the Prophet. If you have a problem, and don't ask him for anything. If you have anything you need, come ask me. Um, okay. Now, what's interesting is so this conversation that goes on where there are very different uh, uh, versions where Hafsa, basically the, the either the Prophet tells Omar, don't intervene between me and Hafsa, or the Prophet is silent but smiles. But then it, the conversation, noticing that the Prophet is less burdened after this, you know, after this conversation, the conversation then moves on um, to, okay, Omar understanding that the nature of the tension in the Prophet's home that leads to these, these arguments is financial needs. And so he sort of jumps to the to the heart of the matter and tells the prophet why don't you pray to allah why don't you ask allah to ease your financial needs and mentions 
It says, Ya Rasulullah, Adullah, and he was ala ummataka, faqad was ala Faris wa Rum. Indeed, he says, the Persians and Romans, they have, if you see the way they live, if Allah would just ease our needs, he, he means the, the Prophet's household. And the Prophet re, then reacts to this by completely rejecting the idea and standing firm at, at the idea that, that the, you know, don't mention the Byzantines and Romans to me because they live for, din, for dunya. Their priorities are different than ours. Our morality, our program is different than theirs and so on. So it goes on there, there the, in, in Tabtaba. I'm reading this from Tabtaba is um, uh, because he he bring, he mentions in the in many the many different versions of this report. So what do we get from this? That there are issues that are non-specified. So other than Omar confirming to Ibn Abbas in these versions that two w women, Hafsa and Aisha, who are have strong personalities, played a leading role. Um Salama, Sauda, Zainab are not leaders, are not born leaders. Hafsa and Aisha are. And that there is tensions in the Prophet's household that results in the Prophet withdrawing from his household, sort of isolating himself in a rest area and clearly there is the news reaches the entire community that the tensions has reached a breaking point but in this genre of reports we are not told what the tahrim is and we are not told what the secret was, and we are not told what the breaking of the confidence was. We're not given any details. And interestingly, although Ibn Abbas is asking Umar ibn Khattab, who are these two women? And Umar ibn Khattab tells him this entire story about gender dynamics the, we used to control our women then we came to a place where women control the men and you know it tells them it tells them about the family problems that omar witnessed in the household of the prophet omar in this cluster of reports or this genre of reports doesn't tell ibn abbas anything about what the confidences were, what the confidence was, 
what the oath was, what the tahrim was. So, in my view, the most historically credible and relevant cluster of narratives is in fact the Ibn Abbas, Omar ibn al-Khattab cluster. It's a cluster that tells us that there were serious family problems, serious family tensions that led the Prophet to say something, either take an oath, make a promise to say something to his wives that he shouldn't have, that we're not privy to, and reminding the wives of the Prophet that if they are surprised that the Prophet knows about what confidence they've broken or kept, that in fact it is because it is Allah that toward the Prophet about this. In other words, what Surah Al-Tahrim is saying about keeping confidence or breaking the confidence is not intended it's not saying it to us. It is, the, the target audience here is the wives of the Prophet. It's to remind the wives of the Prophet that they are not married to a common man. They're not married to a regular person. But that, in fact, they are married to someone who has that connection with the heavens. And... Now, so why would Surah Al-Tahrim want to alert us to a problem without giving us relief as to the details of the problem? And I would tell you that the answer is because it doesn't matter. The message of Surah Al-Tahrim, the issue is not what did the Prophet promise. The issue is not what was the confidence made, what was the confidence broken. That again, like Surah Al-Ahzab, that when it comes to the privacy of the Prophet, the realm of the private space of the Prophet, it is a very dangerous matter for us to try to base guidance or lack of guidance on what is historically inaccessible to us. Allah might have promised to protect the Qur'an, but Allah did not promise to protect the historical 
context of the Quran. What we need to know, Allah tells us in the Quran. Now, why does this matter? Okay, now let's go through the surah. So first, the narrative point. Your obligation is to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala what should take priority is not whether you are making your wives happy but whether you are fulfilling your obligations towards Allah so ya ayyuhan nabi lima tuharrim ma ahalla Allah lak tabtaghi mardata azwajik wallahu ghafurur rahim why do you want to appease your wives by making whatever it is that you've promised, that you've engaged in, it is a grave matter to make something halal, haram, as it is to make something haram, halal. The point to take here is that making something halal, haram, is a very serious matter. And it should, you cannot engage in making something halal, haram, to appease a human being. If the Prophet cannot do it to appease his wives, a priori, none of us can do it to appease any other human being. Okay. And Allah reminds us that if you've made a promise, then expatriation even for the Prophet, is the way that you retreat from an immoral promise. Just because you've compromised yourself, just because you've compromised yourself, and because you've compromised yourself, you ended up making a promise that in retrospect was a wrong promise to make. It doesn't mean that you stick to your, your, to your guns. Retreating because of principle is a moral, a, a, an immoral act in itself. And so you expatriate for the wrongful promise you've made, whatever the promise is. Okay. And then Allah reminds the wives of the Prophet as we've, and this is a message to them. It's like in Surah Al-Ahzab where Allah reminds the wives of the Prophet, you are not like any other women. You have a very special status because you are the wives of a Prophet of God. That when, whatever the confidence that was, communicated and was broken and she says who told who informed you that I've actually broke that confidence and Allah responds well you know keep in mind here Allah is fully involved in this because of the special relationship okay and then Allah reminds again and this is intended to the wives of the Prophet, 
إن تتوبا إلى الله فقد صغت قلوبكما وإن تظاهر عليه فإن الله هو مولاه وجبريل وصالح المؤمنين والملائكة بعد ذلك ظهير This is for If you in fact fix your affairs with the Prophet whatever these affairs were and repent then then you are on God's side. If you don't, well, in the case of the Prophet, he is not just supported by, he is supported by the entire heavens. So, and if you uphold each other against them, in other words, if you continue being in the wrong, God is the Prophet's protector and Gabriel and the righteous among the believers, and all the other angels will come to his aid. This is uniquely for the prophet. In the same way that, who told you that, that I told someone a secret, and the answer is what God told me, is something that is uniquely for the prophet. No other human being can claim that they are supported by Gabriel and the rest of the angels. And this is a, a special message to the wives of the prophet. Like the message, you are not like any other woman or like you are the mothers of the believers. It is a historically closed circle. It's a message that is a closed circuit between the prophet and his wives. Never to repeat, cannot extend beyond. It is from Allah to the wives of the prophet, period. Okay. Then Allah gives them another message that reminds us of Surah Al-Ahzab. Perhaps, and says, Asa Rabbuhu. Here, Asa, it is, it is not that Allah is saying, in fact, Allah will do, but perhaps Allah will do, is that if he divorces any of you, that instead of you, spouses better than you, women who are as the Muslimat, Mu'minat, Qanitat, Ta'ibat, Abidat, Sa'ihat, Ta'ibat, that women who are truly devout, that God will replace you with women who are worthy of Him. Women who are truly devout, who are truly obedient to God, who truly worship with sincerity, and that whether, whether these women be virgins or not virgins, Interestingly, Tayyibat wa Abkara be they women previously married or virgins. In, in other words, it's immaterial whether they are virgins or previously married. The, if keep in mind that if you fail in the moral 
to stand up to the moral station required of being spouses to the Prophet well, Allah could replace you with women who, in fact, rise to that moral station. That's the point. Okay. So, up to this point, it is an intervention in reminding the wives of the Prophet yes you are with a man who doesn't pull rank with you you are with a man whose nature is not like Omar ibn al-Khattab who says don't argue with me or silent and so on yes he allows you to argue with him and it has become sufficiently traumatic for him that he has withdrawn from all of you basically taking a break but sufficient breach that the rumor spread that he might have divorced you and Allah intervenes and says okay get the point this is not about you and him this is about something much larger than you so either you rise to the occasion of the moral challenge that is required to be married to this man or you get out of the way and Allah will replace you and up to this point, it is something quite, as I said, it's a closed circuit between a message directed at the wives of the Prophet. But then Surah Al-Tahrim takes us from there to something about relationships and family dynamics more broadly and says ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu qū anfusakum wa ahlīkum nāran wuqūduha an-nāsu wal hijāra alayha malā'ikatun ghilāzun shidād lā ya'sūna Allāh mā amarahum wa yaf'alūna mā yu'marūn so believers Ward off from yourselves and those who are close to you. Fire of hell after, of, of the hereafter, whose fuel is human beings and stones. Lording or guarding this fire are angelic powers, awesome and severe, who do not disobey God in whatever God commands them. And always do what they are bidden to do. Your charge is to try to, to be a, an active force in your family, saving not just yourself, but your family from the consequences 
of moral failure. You have an obligation towards your family. To affirmatively help that family. Now, there are tons of ahadith, by the way, in this context, where the Prophet ﷺ is told, well, what if I tell my family to do X, Y, Z, and they don't answer, and the Prophet consistently responds, you discharge your obligation by educating them, and then it's their choice. And there are just so many of these ahadith that there's no point in... Um, but they're, they're all around the context of this ayah. Okay. Then, Surah Al-Tahrim, after reminding us of our moral obligation towards those that are under our charge or under our influence within our family, that if you are truly moral, you do not simply take care of yourself and forget the fate of, fa of those who are close to you but you are invested in their fate. Allah reminds us, notice, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا تُوبُوا إِلَى اللَّهِ تَوْبَةً نَصُوحًا عَسَى رَبُّكُمْ أَنْ يُكَثِّرْ عَنْكُمْ سَيِّئَاتِكُمْ وَيَذْكُرْكُمْ جَنَّاتٍ تَجْرِي مِنْ تَحْتِيَ الْأَنْهَارِ يَوْمَ لَا يُخْذِ اللَّهِ النَّبِيِّ وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا مَعُوا نُورُهُمْ يَسْعَى بَيْنَ أتمم لنا نورنا واغفر لنا إنك على كل شيء قدير. So Allah reminds the believers that this is a moral project, and the moral project, something we've also encountered in Surah Al-Ahzab. Let's see the, the how he translates. Okay. Maybe uh, um, so the day on which God um, this is Muhammad Assad's translation the day on which God will not shame the Prophet and those who share his face their light will spread rapidly before them and on their right and they will pray O oh, our sustainer cause this our light to shine for us forever. And forgive us our sins, for verily thou hast the power to will anything. The language here, the objective is to get to a point of moral elevation, that it is as if your light flows between your hands. Nurum And the trajectory of their thought is they want an ever greater elevation 
in luminosity. This, of course, calls to memory everything the Quran has said about the role of light as an anecdote for moral uprightness and moral purification. So let's pause for a second. The Prophet, his private life is his private life. But the aspects of the Prophet's lives that involve normative moral lessons, Allah underscores for us. And Allah reminds the Prophet that live a principled life and never in order to appease your social circles, your family circles, make something that is halal haram or make something that is haram halal. Nearly all the scholars agree that it's, it goes both ways. while the prophet has a special status as do the wives of the prophet being the mothers of the believers have a special status the part that concerns us is that in your family relations you have an affirmative obligation to do whatever within your capacity to elevate your family morally. In other words, to make your family about salvation. Yeah, you, there's no coercion in religion. Yes, there, as these ahadiths say that you, 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 you discharge your obligations once you educate but if you want, if your goal is the Nurani process, if your goal is the process of enlightenment and luminosity and blessing, then your family must be anchored on the principle that God is first and that God's objectives are first not your whims not your tastes we while we are not while Gabriel will not aid any of us or the angels will not aid any of us the way they aid the prophet but we follow in the footsteps of the prophet we approximate to the extent we can so as a number of scholars noted 
that the goal of a husband and a wife in a family, while they cannot count, they can never assume that they have the powers of angels backing them up, but they must aspire and pray and supplicate. In other words, they, they hope for to reach the point of piety where, in fact, the powers of angels would back them up. This cannot be if your, are, if your relationship is about your hawa, your tastes, your likes and dislikes, what makes you happy and what makes you happy, well, Gabriel and the angels are not going to go to bat for you because of your whims. But if it is about the principle of upholding the, what the, the, the Nurani principle, the luminous principle, that in this family, what we aspire for is that the light would flow between our hands and that Allah would ever increase the light in our lives with the sufficient humility and sufficient anchoring, in fact, that might be your fate. Now, look. Then Allah comes and reminds us of something that is painful. That this is now 10. ضرب الله مثلا للذين كفروا امرأة نوح وامرأة لوط كانت تحت عبدين من عبادنا صالحين فخاناتهما فلم يغني عنهما من الله شيئا. But remember, and here, look, the language changes. It's not that the speech is not directed at the wives of the Prophet anymore. ضرب الله مثلا للذين كفروا. Allah is saying, I'm giving you an example now for the bad people. That even the prophets of God, the prophets here, Nuh and Lut, they were two pious people. But even prophets of God can be betrayed by treacherous people. These two women were married to two prophets of God. Abdain Salihain, they, they were truly pious people and they betrayed them. And the fact that betrayed them, of course, the fact that they were married to pious people didn't help them. But there is another reminder in this, and this is something that is, is scholars have noted, other, I mean, people have, have, commented on, so this is not mine. Um, 
that you might in fact be traversing the path of the light. This might be your goal as a husband or as a wife, but you end up being betrayed by your spouse. You might end up being completely, treacherously betrayed by someone who has completely different priorities. You fall apart. Because in the same way that Allah gives you that example, Allah then says, And in the same way, remember, there could be very pious husbands that end up with wives that are absolutely impious. And there could be very pious wives that end up with husbands that are absolutely impious so this is not this is whether husband or wife your it could be that the wife is intent on a nurani path but ends up completely betrayed by her husband and it could be that the husband is intended on a nurani path but end up with an absolutely treacherous wife The challenge in both cases, does it throw you off course or not? Because you can imagine that someone who, you know, think, and all it would take, a betrayal, a treachery, a divorce, and they abandon everything. It happens all the time. The the problem that the how do I put it? The the danger in collective enterprises when when you start preaching to people, okay, walk together in the path of God, hand in hand. The danger is always since you since this was a collective enterprise from the beginning is that if there is treachery or betrayal midway, then there would be a complete abandonment of the project because you started out with a collective framework. And when you found the partnership has failed, you think, well, everything has failed. Nothing can work. That's a very real danger. And in Surah Al-Tahrim, it, it uses the excuse, the occasion. If things can reach a near breaking point between the Prophet and his wives, with the Prophet's wives, Allah can come and threaten them and say, you know what, God will give him better wives and they shape up. With you guys, it's not going to work that way. With you guys, you normal human beings, it's the principle that upholds you. And the principle, yes, the ideal is a partnership, a collectivity that you walk hand in hand where God is first, not your whims, not your tastes, not your desires, but the possibility 
of one of you standing firm and the other falling apart is very real. And if that leads to the crashing of everything, that obviously is not the desired result. And this is why, see, now, it ends up, which this is something that I've always struck me as, okay, so wife of Pharaoh, a woman who is married to a very evil man, and she was pious, and the Pharaoh ends up torturing her to death, and she's actually, so it's not only that she was married to a treacherous man, but a, a very evil man. But then Surah Al-Tahrim ends with the prototype of the ideal and perfect woman, Maryam, who and we've talked about the whole debate about whether Maryam was a prophet or not a prophet. But let's take the position that she wasn't a prophet. Maryam, whose piety as a single woman was such that she became the recipient of God's breath. So, look, he guarded her chastity, who breathed our spirit into that which was in her womb, and who accepted the truth of her sustainer's words, and thus of God's revelation, and was one of the truly devout. It ends up with the prototype of the ideal, perfect woman who achieves luminosity without a man. In my view, that's not a coincidence. That's quite intentional. That for though that there will be occasions of those women, and and by the way, Surah Al-Tahrim and this ending verse, it's not a coincidence that it ended up inspiring a lot of the Sufi women like Rabah Al-Adawiyya and so on. That. If I cannot walk the path to the Lord with a man, then in Surah Al-Tahrim and the ending of Surah Al-Tahrim, then I will walk it alone. Now think about the Omar reports about we were in Mecca, we controlled our women and we came to Medina where we encountered a people controlled by their women. I'm, you know, I'm very uh, conservative about making wild claims about gender liberation and so on. But 
it's very fascinating that which I said that Surah Al-Tahrim of all the narratives the narratives that tell us about the gender tensions which ultimately culminated in the, the, the you know undue pressure being on the, the Prophet and then sort of God having to intervene come in and intervene and say you know okay you know guys cool it you know, we know that God, this man is, is, is very tolerant, gives you a lot of space, but it has become oppressive. Wake up and know who you're married to uh, because otherwise it's not going to work. This is effectively what happens in Surah Tahrib. It ends up, the ending of Surah Tahrib is by affirming the ideal gender role of what did we call it before uh, the Maryams um, um, what's it called um, yeah the, the, I don't think that in my understanding of the Quran where nothing is I think that is quite intentional Alhamdulillah, this is Surah Al-Tahrim completed. Alhamdulillah. Let me check. I haven't forgotten anything since I do tend to forget something sometimes. Oh, um, yeah, th this is just a note that I had written to myself too. Remember that in Surah Al-Hadid, which we've done a long time ago. That in Surah Al-Hadid, there is the affirmative dua as to the truly pious who say, يَقُولُونَ رَبَّنَا أَتْمِمْ لَنَا نُورَنَا وَاخْفِرْ لَنَا إِنَّكَ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ قَدِيرٍ That in, in Surah Al-Hadid is the the where Allah teaches you the affirmative normative dua that you are you pray for Allah to ever increase your luminosity luminosity the light is a process it's an it's a it's an ongoing dynamic of purification and enlightenment and so when we see it in Sirat al-Tahrim revisited it, it harkens back to all that the Quran has taught us about the relationship of light and the moral project of the Quran Okay, that's. Oh, um, <laughs> one last thing. There are reports that Surah Al Tahrim initially, there were reports that it was initially called Surah Al Nabi. 
um, the Prophet's surah. And that name didn't was ultimately was not success, successful uh, because I think that people understood that this surah, yes, it talked about the event and it, it talked about a problem initially or the beginning of the surah about a problem between the prophet and his wives, but that was not the point of the surah. That. the private dispute was being invoked for a far more significant moral point that Allah quite intentionally did not want us to get stuck with what was the dispute about, who said what, who broke the confidence, and so on and so forth. Okay, alhamdulillah, rabbil alameen. We're done. Okay, alhamdulillah, that was amazing as always. Um, it's really fascinating when we think back about um, what the, the last point you made about how all of this harkens back to even Surah Hadid was our very first surah on this journey on Project Illumin and about um, purifying and light. And like in the last several surahs that we've done with Surah Nur and then Azab and then now Tahrim, um, it's so um, amazing that you know we've gone this whole journey now. This is our 82nd surah and like the, the theme of light now especially seems to have been you know it's, it's like a crescendo that we're reaching um, and that the fascinating sort of interplay because it's like it's sort of genderless right I mean God uses males and females and even in this Sura by itself um, we start out thinking that there's an issue with the women mm -hmm. and then we end with the example of this you know, ideal woman that exactly. can go it alone. And like all of this empowerment and beauty that comes through these messages. So SubhanAllah, it's, it's really, um, what an incredible journey, honestly. Um, so I guess what we'll do is then, um, you know, we had four days of Surah Azab and we never had our Q&A, so I'm sure, and we've gotten some Q&As sent to us, so, but, Adding that and then the surah now, I think we'll have, inshallah, a good amount to talk about at the next session. So we'll do our Q&A of both Azab and Tahrim uh, next Tuesday, inshallah. Inshallah. And um, yeah, so please send questions that you have. Um, what an incredible journey. Um, you know, and we're nearing the end of the summer, which is also amazing because I think these are the last couple weeks before kids go back to school or some kids are already back in school. and. Um, we're going to have to uh, start the new law school semester as well, so that before will I go back to affect school. before you go back to school. So we'll probably have to go back to um, maybe one halakha a week because um, it's it's going to be a demanding semester. So let us enjoy these last couple of weeks where we can hopefully have two halakhas a week. Um, and thank you, Sheikh, for this wonderful uh, return to halakhas. Um, what a, a fabulous short but powerful surah um, was so much for us to reflect on um, thank you everybody for joining us and um, inshallah we will hope to see you on Tuesday night inshallah it was great to see everybody assalamu alaikum As